Storygram Network. Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? Everything else. Because it's never, ever about food or weight. Never, ever. Not even. One time. Not ever. Ever, ever. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Laura Lee Rourke from It's Not About Food. And I'm going to talk about body wisdom today. And the front of the card is a beautiful picture of the goddess, and she's sort of in front of a tree, and you it just almost feels like she is the tree, and she is the earth that she's growing into, and she is the world, if you will. It's a beautiful card, and I did not draw it. I wish I had. I don't have that skill, but it is a beautiful card, and her little deer animal is sort of just being there with her being in its own little body wisdom and supporting her and hers. So the back of the card says, body wisdom is the inherent wisdom we each hold within our own bodies that tells us what we need physically, emotionally, and spiritually. When we listen to the wisdom of our bodies, we intuitively know how to feed ourselves, satisfy our needs, and accept our natural bodies. And for me, this is such a powerful idea and recovery tool is to believe in the wisdom of the body, to believe that our bodies know how to pee. They know how to go to sleep. They know how to wake up. They know how to eat. They know how to walk. They know how to do everything that we can do with our bodies, that we do not have to micromanage them and we don't have to like will them into doing something else. We can do that, and people do do that. And I spent a lot of time trying to... Well, first of all, I didn't believe that my body had any wisdom. I thought my body was just an appendage that I had to, like, force and beat up and make it do something I wanted it to do. So when I got the concept of that it has its own wisdom, it knows I don't really need to tell it what to do and when to do it. As the good parent of my body, if you will, or maybe my body is my good parent to me, but as the one who can drive the car, I guess, (laughs) it's my job to take care of it, just like it's my job to take care of my pets. And when my child was younger, it was my job to take care of him. There's a wisdom here in that, and that I can be in partnership with my body and listen to it and believe in it. And I did not have that when I was struggling with my eating disorder. And so many of my clients come in and they would rather believe in a TV show than in their own bodies. We'd rather believe in a piece of paper that has a diet on it than our own bodies. There's a story in my family that when I was born in 51, what was the thing to do was timed feedings. So I'd be crying in the crib, crying because I'm hungry, and my mother would look at her watch and say, well, you can't eat yet. You have to wait. It's another hour before you're supposed to eat. (laughs) So 
right from the very get-go. <laughs> I could not trust me. I had to wait. I had to wait for a time or a person to tell me what to do. And I think that stayed with me in a lot of my eating disorder over the years. I am so glad to have Patricia here talking with me, being on the show today, talking about body wisdom. I'm not sure if I know many other people that would know more about this than her. So I really appreciate her being here today and very honored to have you. And I'm going to turn the show over to her and she could tell us what she's doing, where she's going these days and what up. Well, first, Laura Lee, I wanted to really thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm very happy and honored to accept your invitation. And I, I just learned you and I were born the same year. Wow. So it was a very good year, right? It was a very good year. Yeah. Yes. The best year. <laughs> Indeed. And you sent me your beautiful deck of body love cards. And I said to you on the phone, oh, I'm a Libra. I'm going to have trouble selecting a card, you know, that we could focus on for this talk. And I went through the deck and I had picked out maybe five or six cards. And I realized all the other cards were really embodied in body wisdom. <laughs> it, yes. was, it was really all there, whether it was truth, yeah. fullness, yeah. trust, boundaries, feelings. If we are able to make contact with ourselves, and I say it that way because I think for most of us, we can relate to the story you told about right from birth, having something come in and intercede between our natural inclination to meet our needs and outside force saying, no, don't listen. I know better. Yes. And we spend probably a lot of our adult life trying to come back to that connection. Yeah. And when you think about that, my mom was trying to do what somebody else had told her. So it wasn't even coming from my own mother. There was probably a man doctor <laughs> that decided this. I don't know why. Decided that this is the way to do it and did not think that there would be me and maybe probably other, a lot of little kids that would be suffering from it forever, for a long, long time. So yeah, these things that we do, maybe innocently, that blow up in our face or blow up in somebody else's face. When, Best of intentions. Yeah. And when we just go back to, oh, trust my body, what a concept. But as a little baby, they are trusting their body. They do know when they're hungry and they do know. Yes. Right. And the messages come out. And if those messages are read correctly and then responded to and honored, we learn to do that for ourselves. And if that doesn't happen, then it's years of trying to get back to a point where we trust what we're feeling, but even deeper than that, that we can actually feel what's going on in our bodies. I wanted to add that part of the parenting then, and I think it's very much a part of parenting now, is training your child to sleep through the night yeah. and not responding to crying and just let them cry it out. And then somehow they're going to learn to fall asleep as if a baby wouldn't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. and so very, right? Very yeah. early on, our cries for our needs aren't being met. Right? And then somewhere along the way, we shut down and we learn to cut off 
that awareness of what we feel, which is the information about what we need. And then we try, as you were saying, to go to all of these externals. And of course, in in your podcast, it's not about food, right? A lot of the focus is on some external expert, some authority that can actually tell us what we need to eat, how much we need to eat, when we need to stop, what we should weigh, all of those things. Right. On and on and on. On and on and on. Because we certainly cannot trust ourselves. We can't trust ourselves to have our own bodies, and we certainly can't trust ourselves to take care of our little child. You know, I remember, I don't know how to do this. There's no instructions, but you do know how to do it. It's okay. Find your way. If you trust yourself. If you trust yourself and trust the baby. Therapeutic work is about reconnecting with feeling and then learning by testing out whether you can actually trust that you really do know what you need and that in in most cases you also know how to get those needs met if you feel that you have a right to need. That's and, right. That is such an important part. Right, especially as women, right? Yeah. And as little girls, focus on everyone else's needs because that's where you get affirmation and that's where you get connection. And that's what you're here to do, serve. You know, I feel like I hopped off of the operating table from my being born and just said, can I get anyone anything? Is there, (laughs) does anybody need, (laughs) can I get you a cold drink? (laughs) Because I was always the one that was like, let me take care of everyone around me. Meanwhile, my little body or my little self was like (laughs) dying in the corner. Yeah, precisely. That we get so attuned to everyone else's needs and that somehow I don't know if we're sold a bill of goods or whether we just kind of figure that if we take care of everyone else, then we're going to get taken care of. And that just isn't how it works. We have to start with really learning to take care of ourselves. And I was going to share with you, when I went through my graduate program training to become a psychotherapist, one of the readings I came across this word I had never heard before was two words. It was interoceptive awareness. Whoa. And I was like, ooh, what is that? Yeah. So it turns out there's this very scientific sounding word that is about our ability to be aware of what is happening in our own bodies. So it's physiological need, and it's also the emotions that move through our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I tell people I work with, and I'm pretty sure you do too, that emotions are energy in motion. Yeah. And they're meant to, to flow out of us and both inform us of what we need and then help us to move forward with getting those needs met. And most of the work I do is really about helping people to learn to reconnect with their awareness of what's happening mm-hmm. in their bodies. And then, as you said, learning to trust that. Oh, yes. Yes. Learning to trust it. And I think about, it's not that I didn't want to trust it. It's no one told me I could. In fact, I was told the opposite. You know, I was raised in a Catholic boarding school. We had to take a bath by putting a sheet over our bodies with a hole cut out for our head, pick up the sheet, step into the bath, and put the sheet over the bathtub, take your bath. So you weren't even allowed to look at your body naked, your own body. 
So for me, right then, there was a huge disconnect. There was my head and a big white cloud. (laughs) That was my body. Wow. That that is just the perfect (laughs) metaphor, right, for that floating head where we try to get through life thinking our way through things and really getting caught up in all of the thoughts and completely disconnected from our bodies where the real wisdom and the real answers are. Right. And if I didn't do that, I got in trouble. So to go along to get along, okay, I don't know why I have to do it like this, but who am I to question the frigging Catholic Church? (laughs) You know, so one tiny person. So yeah, you know, I think when I work with people, when I worked with myself about this, it was sort of like, no wonder No wonder you thought this. No wonder you did this. No wonder this was how you worked it out within yourself. Of course, it makes so much sense now, which is so much nicer than, oh, I'm crazy and I'm never going to get well and nothing is ever going to be good for me again as long as I live. That's where I would go. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Because the good news is that eating disorders are really curable, healable, yes. you know, we don't have to continue to live this way. Yep. But the comment you made about kind of learning that this is how you get along mm-hmm. is actually the pivot point for healing, which is that it's actually in learning to be brave enough to feel yes, and to express those feelings and then honor those needs. That is really how we get along difficult. It's really frightening. I mean, how many times do you hear people when they start to cry say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, of course. Yeah. It's just stunning. It's our culture. I don't know how prevalent it is in other cultures to apologize for this feeling coming from the heart and being expressed. Yeah. Or having a problem. I'm sorry, I can't figure this out. Or can you open this for me? I'm sorry, I can't. You know, it's just... I think women, we as women, I of course see it in men, but women, we're always apologizing for our very existence. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry I'm here. <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. Right? It's so true. The old story from when I was growing up was don't win at tennis kind of thing, like let the boy win. And I think it really also cut across the gender lines, like it was better to let the other person go first and to win and to give that attention. And again, like I said, somehow believing that then you're going to receive. And I remember when I I used to describe to people that really what you're doing is sending the message that you're a doormat and that I'm just completely here for you. I have no needs. And that the people who gravitate toward the person who's acting like a doormat are typically people who are looking for someone to walk all over. So it's really, really, really not the way that you get your true needs met by overextending yourself and not taking care of what you really need. Yeah, and I can remember just talking about this is that there's also a lot of pressure, especially for us to look a certain way, be a certain way, so that you will get taken care of, so that you will get a job, so that you will get a man, so that you will get your needs met, whatever it was, that that was your coin 
my coin was to look a certain way. I come from a very lookism family. It was all about how you looked. It wasn't about who you were as a person or how good or bad you were. Well, we weren't bad. We were little kids. But it wasn't about that. It was about how you looked. I wore glasses, and I've worn them since ninth grade, but I probably should have had them as a child, much younger. But I can remember I would squint, and I said, Mom, I think I need glasses. She was like, yeah, no, they don't look good. And I was like, well, how does this look? Squish up my face really much. (laughs) She goes, well, don't do that. Sit up closer. It was like, again, my fault that I had a problem, and the problem was my eyes were whatever. They didn't see 2020. It was not that they were bad. They just didn't, weren't there like that. And I learned again, learned that even if I can't see, I look better. (laughs) That's what's really important. That's what's really important. And that's where I needed to just stay with that. Well, you remind me of something that I really learned over and over along the way in working with a lot of people, mostly women with eating disorders, is a belief that somehow if you can change your outside and you can push yourself into some image or some mold, that then you're going to get the attention that you need. And I was thinking particularly about a woman that I worked with several years ago who actually was a professional model And one of just a strikingly beautiful woman who sat across from me and wept and had Mm. no idea that anyone would see her that way and Mm -hmm. had such insecurity, not only about how she looked, but just feeling so inadequate. And that it's really not about how you look. It's about how you value yourself and what you bring to the world. So many of us have tried to squeeze into some crazy fashion, or for me, it brings back memories of years and years of battling my curly hair. (laughs) And, you know, because it was just not in fashion. And I, when I was a younger, my sister actually ironed it on Uh the ironing board, singeing top of my ears along the way. But exactly. I mean, that's just, again, it's such a perfect metaphor for trying to be something else rather than fully embracing who you are. And I remember seeing an episode of a, of a television series and it was called something about curly headed women. It was just about embracing that. And I thought, wow, what a crazy idea. And they, they were just <laughs> talking about, you know, these kind of wild women who just let their curls go and aren't trying to just fit the straight and narrow. And I thought, wow, that's a new concept. Yeah. Well, isn't that the way with all of it? Whatever thing that we judged was not good, Carol and I came up with the idea of these cards, and neither one of us can draw, but we wrote the cards. But we would, working with artists, trying to tell them what we saw in our mind's eye of what the cards should look like, and each card is different. And we wanted to use many different bodies for the goddesses because we're not all the same body and just different things that we've worked on ourselves. Like, well, my limbs are too long. I'm too flat chested. My hips are too big. My breasts are too big. My For what? These are just the bodies. And our female bodies have been this way since time began. 
there's been different kinds of shapes and sizes. So why is it now in the last couple of hundred years that it's a disease to have big breasts or big hips or big belly or butt or flat chest or big nose or why would that be all of a sudden? It's because people can make money on that, on you doing something different than that. Well, there certainly is a huge industry. And I think because of the way we're raised that so many of us feel like there is something inherently wrong with us, whether it's that we're too emotional or our energy is too big, we're too loud, we're too, too much of something or not enough of something else. You know, and the healing is really about learning to appreciate, deeply appreciate who we are and that self-love, which is almost cliche at this point, but is an actual embodied experience, that joy of being alive and a deep appreciation for what each of us brings, that that's really a healing. Storygram Network. Welcome to One Media, One Media. I'm... It's a place I like to call The Bleed. My name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. Rich flavor is one of your favorites. You'll want to join me on the wine road. The art of being yay isn't just something he developed. Storygram Network. Yeah, and I don't mean to be only talking about Women have had this thing, you know, I, when I go into schools and talk about this issue, I bring a group of young peer educators with me to, because I can sit up there as blah, 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 but somebody closer to their age talking about the issue, they'll perk up and listen a little bit more for sure. But I often tell the boys, you know, well, you will either know somebody with an eating disorder, chances are in your life, or you'll have a daughter or you'll have a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever, and they will have this issue. So you might as well know what to do about it. But they're coming after you too. You are a source of income. And I want to say the media, but really it is the advertising agencies of the companies. They're spending a lot of money to make you feel bad about yourself. So you'll buy their product. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. And then it just gets further and further and further away from the body wisdom, from what you have already at your fingertips, really literally at your fingertips. Yeah. I just spend a lot of time when I'm working with people, helping them to learn how to reconnect and that so much of it is in the breath. And what I usually say is, isn't this incredible that it's free Yeah. Always accessible. You can actually do it anywhere. If you're sitting with a a bunch of peers or at a business meeting or wherever, once the pandemic is over, people can't notice that if you're just slowing down your breath and taking a nice, slow, long inhale, and then a longer, even maybe double time exhalation. Yes. And do that a couple of times. And I always love that moment of wonder on the face of the person I'm working with when then I say, how do you feel? And they they feel so much calmer. It really works great, especially for anxiety. But 
even for depression. And when they're in that quiet space that I've, I've heard you talking about also, that's when you can begin to notice your own responses to the world. And whether it's the physical feeling of, I call it like, that's enough, sort of Goldilocks, like it isn't like I'm full, but oh, that's enough. And I remember when my son was growing <laughs> up and I really tried to stay out of the way of his relationship with food. And he could be in the midst of putting a bite in his mouth or even putting it in his mouth. And then he would just get the, that's enough. And he would you know, <laughs> yes. get it back out because he got the signal and he was so in touch. He would just stop. And yeah. I thought, wow. It's that, amazing. That <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking the same thing. Like, I remember him at a birthday party and uh, he was eating a piece of cake. And so I was on a diet, of course, at that time and didn't eat cake. <laughs> so I was there looking at that cake and he just pushed it away. And I said, aren't you going to eat your cake? And he goes, mom, there's always cake. <laughs> I was like... Oh, yeah, there is always cakes. But to me, that's the last piece of cake you're ever going to eat because you're going to go on a diet tomorrow. That was my mentality. Exactly. If there's always cake, you don't have to finish it. Right. And if there's never a cake, you got to eat the whole thing away. And then never eat it again. Right. And your little son taking it out going, that's enough, had the full promise of more food whenever he was wanted it. Right. Because he felt secure, that his needs were going to be met, whether it was bonding to him crying or not trying to get him to like finish every bite on the plate. It's like, oh, that's enough. Yes. And the same thing with emotion. Like, I don't know how many times you've heard this. I've lost track for myself of people saying they're afraid to start crying because they'll never stop. They'll never stop. Right. That's the fear. Yes. Because when you've bottled up so much, there is a reservoir of tears And in the beginning, it's going to flow and flow and flow and flow. And I try to reassure them by saying, in all the years I've been doing this work, more than 40 years, I have literally never had a patient who started crying and couldn't stop. (laughs) I I haven't even read a case study. Um, It might exist, but it has a natural kind of bell curve. And if we just breathe and let the emotion move through us, Again, we're so liberated because we don't have to push it back down and carry it and carry it and the pressure of that and shoving the food in to keep those feelings not only inside, but even from our own awareness. Yes. Well, what you're saying is so important about that, again, trusting ourselves, accepting and trusting ourselves, the inherent wisdom that... If you have a lot of tears, well, of course you have. Like your minds are like a dog, sort of. It's like cry, cry, cry. Oh, a squirrel. <laughs> you know, it'll be something else. And but I have clients do this. Say, if I start getting angry, feel your anger. I mean, it's, anger tells you your boundaries are crossed. It's good. You need it. If I get angry, so I'll never stop. I'll just be horrible. It's like no, you'll get anger and then you'll get boredom and then you'll get joy and then you'll get fear and then it's okay whatever it is feel what you feel i love what you said about the anger for example really serving a purpose and when we're cut off from 
what we feel. We don't feel the signal of a boundary being crossed or there even being danger. I, I don't know if you, have you read the book, The Gift of Fear? No, I've read <laughs> Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's along those lines. Well, The Gift of Fear is written by um, Gavin DeBecker, who's a security specialist. So it's not ah. from a psychological perspective, but he tells these stories because he was a security expert, I think, to the stars and different political figures. And so when, when people would call on his services, they did it because usually they had had some trauma, something had happened, and, and now they, they wanted a higher level of protection and security. And if you listen to their stories, he realized there was this pattern where at some point in the story, this person would say, and then I had this feeling. And then the story would go on, essentially that they did it anyway, and something terrible happened because they did have an intuition. They had a sense of the energy around them or what was coming that they just ignored or devalued. And then they had something bad happening. So we need to be able to feel those nuances of energy or the anger that says this person's in my space, or I don't feel safe, or I feel great with this person. I feel so safe with them. Like we have to be able to notice that. Yeah. And that and trust it. receptive awareness and trust. As you were talking about the security company, many, so many years ago, I took a course called Awakening the Warrior Within. And she talked about tuning into those intuitive, like, maybe I shouldn't go down that street. Maybe this dark car park is not a good place for me to park. And then come out at 12 o'clock at night and get in my car. To trust those parts of us that know, then obey them, <laughs> then do what they're asking us to do. Exactly. And it's more than just the cognitive knowing, right? It's a deeper, a deeper knowing to the person who thought, I shouldn't go around this corner. Something doesn't feel right. And then you disregard it. And a lot of the work is about being able to discern the difference between the fear that protects you and the fear that you bring with you to do something courageous that really takes you to a new place in your life. Yes. How do you feel the nuanced difference of the quality of those energies? Right. How do you feel afraid because you're afraid to step into this new arena and become, you know, whatever, or that this is a bad arena for you to step into? What's the difference of that? And again, when I go into schools and I have the peers ask the question, we're going to talk about intuitive eating. Does it, everybody know what intuitive means? And they'll, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, you know, when you walk into a room, if this is a safe place for you to be or not, right? Does anybody have that feeling? And these are young people. Every one of them will raise their hand. Yeah, I know. I get that. Do you obey it? Do you know? I try to, sometimes I can't or whatever. So we lose this ability to trust ourselves somehow and the culture starts to take it away at some point that, no, you know, you have to eat at a certain time. You have to go to school at a certain time. You better wake up. You got to, we lose all of that at some point and we have to spend the rest of our lives getting it back, but it's all there when we're little. Yeah. And it's, they're waiting for us to rediscover. Yeah, it's true. Somewhere, I don't know. I don't think it was maybe in the 70s or, you know, in this kind of era of 
different kind of self-exploration. I remember there was a, a lot of image of like uh, cords, almost like an, a, an electric cord that was flopping around and wasn't plugged in. Yes. <laughs> and I thought that it's like you kind of have to grab that and reconnect inside your body and to bring all of the attention back inside your body. And so often I'll say to somebody, well, how do you feel? And I'll watch their eyes roll up. Into their brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then I'll go, no, yeah. no, no. What do you, not what do you think you feel? <laughs> I want, you know, and then yeah. it's just leading them back because they don't even know the way. And it's right. so revelatory. Yeah. And so often you ask that question to somebody with an eating disorder or body disturbance or whatever. How do you feel? And they'll, I feel fat. It's like, oh, fat's not a feeling. Well, it is the only feeling. And it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? And then you have to go kind of parse that out. But yeah, it's, um, I feel what? And it's, I don't know. I don't know what I feel. I feel numb. I feel there's nothing. I don't know. And yeah, they look up to their brain to get the words because so little of the time we're spending in our body. Exactly. And that idea that when you connect in your body with the feeling, then mostly we use the word as a symbol that we use to communicate what the emotion is. But if you can be connected with the emotion and express it, whether it's in words or a sound or tears or a smile, right? The other person receives that so profoundly. It's so powerful. It's just the difference between feeling like you're talking at someone and making the connection. And I think especially these days, so many of us are shut up in our homes and hardly seeing any people and not really feeling enough of a connection with others. We're dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression. So I don't know what you're finding, but um, I'm always amazed that the connection can be made in space. Right? You don't have to be in a shared physical space. Right. You, can, right? you can feel it sometimes in a written letter. Yes. Feel it. And finding the same thing with working remotely, that if, if we can get the connection and it, I'm not finding it very difficult to do, then, then the healing happens. This is such a great point, I think, because at first going on Zoom or remote I pretty much hated it. Now, my clients probably hated it too, but they wanted to be with me talking about these things. So I dealt with it and would say to others, I just really hate it. I really hate it, really hate it. And then after a point, I thought, stop putting all this energy into hating it. What is kind of cool? Well, what is kind of cool is I get to see their house. They get to see me and I get to see them on unplugged, if you will, just wild, feral. Maybe there's a dog in the picture sometimes or a cat or a little kid runs by. or It's different, and I have a hard time with different if, unless I do it. If I make it different, then it's okay, but if it's different on top of me. But yeah, and I feel that sometimes because they are in their comfortable place, in their house, in their jammies, <laughs> They do feel a little bit more comfortable sometimes, I think. And uh, and we're all just trying to 
deal with this pandemic that is so horribly scary. And what we just went through with 2020 and just the insanity of the end of this presidency and it just went on and on and on. That any of us lived through that is pretty great. That any of us was ever able to get up and turn on a computer and talk to somebody about it is pretty great. <laughs> yeah. The other day I worked with a new patient and he's the father of three little ones and he was home with the kids and he had one was napping, one was roaming around, and I think one was watching something. And we were able to get through a whole session and he could be home. He never could have made it to my office with the three kids. Right, right. Work. So there are some trade-offs and there were some people who were apprehensive, but by and large, the feedback is that it makes treatment, therapy, healing so much more accessible. Yes. And I love the things that you said about there's a kind of intimacy about you seeing where they live, they see where you live, and you're not in an office. And I, I actually wrote an article about this and I was thinking, oh, I should do some research about it. And I thought, well, when did we start working in offices? You know, that, that, if you <laughs> yes. think about it, like, why would you do therapy in an office? Right. So I, I researched like, well, where did Freud treat his patients, right? Right. That's where. That's it. That's in the a couch. back bedroom of his family home. <laughs> yes. And they said kids were walking past and just the whole life of where he lived. And then there was this back bedroom that was really full of who he was. It was not the blank slate. It just was, I've never seen a room so full of wow. things that were all really amazing. And I thought, oh, when did it become the medical model where we have to be in an office? And which in some ways is really inhibiting of a kind of intimacy. Well, it is for sure. And how do you work with somebody without being a person too? That's the other thing. It's like, (laughs) we're supposed to be so backed up and protected or something. And I understand the ethical part about that. But I'd much rather have a doctor or a therapist or a dentist or somebody that's going to be helping me that would go, you know, it's hard for me to floss every day too. <laughs> you know, it just makes me feel better. <laughs> Be a real person. Be a real person. Yeah. I'm just not a talking head and they're not a talking head that we're actually getting into the thick of things, if you will. I'm going to carry that image that you created. I mean, that just really struck me. I, I actually didn't know about the thing with the sheet with the hole in it. And it is just the perfect, you might need a card for, you know, the other side of body love, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Body these, yeah. With this disconnection. Oh, for that, sure. Right? We're so alienated and our bodies are the enemy and our body's needs are, that's the other thing. It's like they're an imposition. Like I'll have people I'm working with that just, oh, I'm so much trouble. Why do I have to be like this? I'm just so needy. Yeah. My favorite, least favorite words, right? And then turning that into, well, do you mean you have needs? And, and when, what's the difference between having a need and needy? And there's a, like an ocean of exploration right. there. But you think about how we've been taught, again, as women, but also as men, humans, the body is something to overcome. I don't know whether it's our religious background or the cult that we've all lived in or whatever, but that the body is not okay. And a woman's body, I grew up in a time when you had your period, 
You should just be staying over here, sitting down. Don't even exercise. And don't be wearing this color clothes. And don't just try not to be around anyone and infect anybody with your stuff. You know, it's just so insane. And women couldn't go up on the Walter, on the altar, you know, because it, they were unclean. And I just on and on and on, these generational ideas about the body. And no wonder, no wonder we get away from our body wisdom. No wonder it's been shamed and blamed and burned at the stake. We've just really had a hard time being with our bodies because they've had so much stuff put on them. Listening to you, I had another thought which has to do with food and this way that food becomes a substitute to take care of all of these needs and some really different needs, whether it's to shut your feelings down or you get fat to express that you're really angry because someone in your life doesn't want you to be fat. Right. Or get really thin so you disappear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even more than that, it's when we have had our trust really betrayed and it's way too risky to go to a person when we feel vulnerable. And so the food feels so safe, right? It can take care of me and I don't have to risk being put down or not being understood or being ignored or all of those things. And so I'm I'm sure all of us who work in this area are striving to find out what is the need in that moment and how to grant yourself permission to actually seek getting that need met and trying. And if it doesn't work there, call someone else, reach out in another way because your needs don't go away. And if they go underground or get kind of lodged inside and depressed inside of us, they're going to come out as symptoms. Yeah. If we're taught that, like so many of us, if we're taught, so many of my clients, so many people I know, that your needs will actually never be met. So why even have them? And I think of Shannon Myers, who worked with Beyond Hunger for a long time, would say, we were such smart little girls to come up with this way of taking care of ourselves. That, you know, maybe we didn't get our needs met, even if we had great parents. They just can't be everything to us. They're not gods. They're not able to. They're humans, too. So aren't we smart to, well, candy will make me feel better. So there's part of us that goes, ah, I have a big feeling. My knee-jerk reaction is to eat candy. Candy is dandy. It's not anything wrong with it. But it's not the only thing that we can eat if we feel hungry. And if we feel sad, maybe we get to cry. But we didn't know that as these little kids. We had to just suck it up and be little soldiers. Very well, well said. So right now you have a great area that you can just talk about whatever you want to talk about, like whatever you would like to promote. And I wonder if you would like to share some stuff that you're doing that you want to put out in the universe and let more people know about. Well, I would say what I want to really convey is that there is true healing that is possible with treatment. And I feel like it isn't said enough. And there are so many different approaches to dealing with disordered eating that 
might say, this is something you'll have all your life. You have to control it. You have to manage it. You know, there, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't go away. And that is absolutely not my experience and it's not my belief. And when I talk about this with people I work with and that no one's ever said that to them and that there really is a way and that for you and I and people who do this work, I think of this as a kind of guide on the path, that we've been down the path and we're holding a a torch so we light the way and walk together, but that there is a path out of this and it's about that reconnecting within, like the way out is in. That's right. That's a great way to say it. And I tell my clients, all it is, is I've just gone through maybe a half a door more than you have. (laughs) And I'm just telling you, we can go through this door. The door is open. We can go. Let's you go. You know that terrain. Exactly. And it's not going to kill you. You're going to be okay. These are feelings that you have anyway. And there is recovery. You do not have to have this the rest of your life. As long as we swim in this little fishbowl that we're all in right now, there's going to be a lot of stuff said to us, but we can not believe them. We can take them in our head and think about them and then, I don't know, come up with yeah, that's not going to work for me anyway to believe that about myself. And that's where the breath in. Yes. Like think about it and then you breathe it in. Yeah. And does that feel true to me? Does that feel right? Because so often when I'm working with people, I'll say something and trying to read where it's landing and they'll just say, that's true. Like they feel the truth of it, even if they're not there in their own life experience yet, they know. They know. They feel right. the truth of it. And that gives them courage to keep walking down the path. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's what I want to promote, that have the courage to you know, make the call if you need help, to make sure you find the right fit for you, because it really is about that. And it is my contention that you will feel it in the first contact on the phone. Absolutely. Without and a doubt. Know, Listen right? to that. Yeah into that because that's there. And because the road gets pretty bumpy and tough at points. So you want to have that baseline, like I feel this connection with this person so I can trust them when I get really scared. They've got me. Exactly. Well, I wonder if you would read this last part of the body love card. Today I will practice. Today I will practice trusting in the wisdom of my body. I will listen to my body when I'm hungry and full. Listen for what my body wants and needs and trust the intuitive voice of my body. Oh, yes. Amen, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm so grateful for you being on. When we were talking, I said, oh, I got to tell Carol that you were on today because she'll just be really happy about that. But Thank you very, very much for taking time and being on this. I'm really grateful, very honored that you took this time to be on the show. Thank you for listening. You can find me on all the social medias at It's Not About Food. And if you would like to get the show a week early and ad-free, you can become a member at Patreon. Search It's Not About Food podcast. Thanks so much.